I read to you from the book of Matthew, the 27th chapter, starting in the 15th verse. Now at the festival of the governor was accustomed to release a prisoner for the crowd among anyone they wanted. And at that time they had a notorious prisoner called Jesus Barabbas. So after they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Jesus, Barabbas, or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? For he realized that it was out of jealousy that they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, Have nothing to do with this innocent man, for today I have suffered a great deal because of a dream about him. Now the chief priest and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus killed. And the governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? And all of them said, Let him be crucified. Then he asked, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. And then they handed him over to the soldiers, and he was crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Recently, I was reading a book entitled Picking Cotton. It was written by Ronald Cotton and Jennifer Thompson. It was a story about Jennifer Thompson that took place about 25 years ago. She was a college student then, 22 years old. She was going to school in North Carolina. She lived alone. And one night, she had come home, and while she was there and she was sleeping, someone broke into her house. They came in and assaulted her and raped her and threatened to kill her. She managed to escape and she ran next door to a neighbor and there they called 911. The police came. Jennifer said she had worked so hard to memorize everything she could about this man's face because she wanted him brought to justice. It was about 10 days later that the police had a lineup and they brought Jennifer in and said, do any of these men look like the person who assaulted you? And Jennifer looked at the lineup and she said, that is the man. It is Ronald Cotton. She picked Ronald Cotton. And they took him to trial. And he was convicted. He was sent to prison for life. But the whole time through the trial and through when he began to serve in prison, he kept saying, I am innocent. I am innocent. But Jennifer knew he was the man. He had been in jail for a few years when a man named Bobby Poole wound up being sent to prison. Now, Bobby Poole had been raised in the same neighborhood as Ronald Cotton, and they actually looked a lot alike. And after he was in prison, he, co he confessed to another prisoner he was the one who assaulted Jennifer. And when the word got back to Ronald Cotton, he called his lawyer, and they got a new trial. And now Jennifer had to look, and there was Bobby Poole, and there was Ronald Cotton, and they said, can you choose the man who assaulted you? And she said, he's the one. And she picked out Ronald Cotton again. Back to prison he went. He was in prison for 11 years. 11 years when a new thing called DNA testing was gaining credibility and had come about. Ronald Cotton called his lawyer and said, could you get some DNA testing done? They did DNA testing. And what they discovered was Bobby Poole was a perfect match. And when they confronted Bobby Poole with the evidence, then he confessed. Ronald Cotton was immediately let out of jail. 
after 11 years. When the DA came to Jennifer and told her what had happened, what was the truth, and that he was being let out, she cratered. Can you imagine the guilt? Picking the wrong person. All she could think about was, I, I stole 11 birthdays from this man. I stole 11 Christmases. I stole 11 years where he could have been married, having a family. She was overwhelmed with a sense of guilt. And then she began to have fear. I mean, goodness gracious, this man would want revenge. What would he do to her, to her family, to her husband? She began being in such fear and guilt, and it really led her life into a downward spiral. For the next two years, she made sure in her town never to see Ronald Cotton but she lived with such guilt and such fear. She couldn't take it. She finally went to the DA and said, can you arrange a meeting with me and Ronald Cotton? He said, I'll try. And Ronald Cotton agreed to the meeting. They decided they would meet at a church. She brought her husband, and Ronald Cotton brought his new wife, Robin. They came to the church, and there were police, and there were the lawyers, and there was the DA, but when they all got together, Jennifer said, could the four of us meet alone? And so they went back into a room. And Jennifer now had to confront this man that she had hated for 11 years, a man that she had chosen. And she was wrong. And she said, Mr. Cotton, I don't know if I should call you Ron, Ronald, Mr. Cotton. I just want to say to you today, if I could say today and every day for the rest of my life, I am sorry, it would not express how badly I feel. Can you ever forgive me? And Ronald Cotton said, you can learn a lot by looking into somebody's eyes. And he said, when I looked into her eyes, I could see her sincerity. I knew she was hurting. And he reached out and he took her hands and he said, I forgave you a long time ago. We were both victims of a brutal crime. I know you're hurting. I forgave you a long time ago. I want you to know you have nothing to fear. I would never do anything to harm you or anyone in your family. I forgive you. Jennifer said she just looked at him, and then she started to sob. And she started sobbing harder, and everybody in the room started sobbing. And she said, I just suddenly fell into this man's arms, and this man that I'd hated for 11 years, and he wrapped his arms around me and just held me. She said, that day, Ronald Cotton set me free. Do you know what it's like to have guilt? Do you know what it's like to be set free? It made me think about our scripture lesson tonight. You remember how Jesus had been betrayed by his disciples into the hands of the high priest, the Sanhedrin. They'd brought him up for trial and they tried him on the, the charge of blasphemy. And they convicted him that he needed to die. 
but they didn't have the death penalty. And so the next morning they took him to Pilate, the Romans, and now they changed the, the charge. It was the charge of treason. He's claiming to be a king, and that's a charge against Caesar. Pilate could see through their plot. He understood this was a political move, and he wasn't easily swayed by it. And so he said, all right, I'll take care of this. We will flog the man, and they flogged Jesus. And they brought him back and said, are you satisfied now? No. And so he brought out a man named Barabbas and said, we have a custom here at the Passover that we will release a prisoner to you. Who do you want? Pilate had been warned in a dream by his wife, be careful, I've suffered because of this innocent man. Pilate was trying to get out of the deal. Who do you want? And the crowd cried, Barabbas. Then what do you want me to do with this Jesus? Crucify him. And so he washed his hands and he delivered him to be crucified. It is one of the most poignant scenes that we have in the whole Bible. And I've often wondered about this man Barabbas. What happens to him? A man who was guilty of murder and insurrection. And a man who now was going to be set free because an innocent man was going to die. What would happen to Barabbas? What kind of guilt would he feel? How would it affect him? We all have been there. We all have done and said things that have hurt somebody else. We all have sinned. We all know guilt. How do we deal with it? That's what I want us to think about this evening. And there's just two things that I want to say. First of all, I think it's important to remember that Jesus died on the cross. Not to make you feel guilty, but to set you free. When you and I come to church, in the church we focus on the cross. And when we focus on the cross, we talk about our sins. We talk about how we have failed, how we have not been all that we should have been. And you know, sometimes that's where church stops. We stop and all we do is talk about how bad we have been and how we have sinned. And if we're not careful, the church produces guilt. That's all that we do. We produce guilt. We are bad. But I think that Jesus died on the cross not to make you feel guilty but to set you free. When Pilate said, who do you want me to release to you? The crowd said Barabbas. You know, given the same choice, Jesus would have chosen Barabbas too. That's why he's the Savior. Because he came to say to us, even if you've quit on God, God hadn't quit on you. He came to say somebody still believes in you. You can be forgiven. You can be set free. Years ago, when I was living down in Houston, I, I had to go down to Galveston for a meeting. I had gone down to Galveston, and I was going to head on back home, and I, I started hitting some back roads to get on over to I-45 to head north. And as I was coming through the little towns, it's a lot like some of the little towns in Oklahoma. You know how you come along and you see a sign, and it says Logansville, and you drive for the next mile, you don't see anything, and then you come to the sign and it says, Leaving Logansville. <laughs> but as you are driving along, there's a speed limit sign that always goes down. And you know behind some trees, some policeman is sitting there to make money for Logansville. 
I know how they do that, and so I was driving home, and I made sure when I hit those little towns, I slowed down. So as I came through one of those little towns, and I had slowed down, here came the police the other direction. I glanced down at my speedometer and thought, I'm doing well, I'm doing well. Suddenly, he turns on his lights, flips around, and comes behind and pulls me over. And I'm thinking, what in the world? He comes up, and he says, uh, your inspection sticker's expired. We don't have to have inspection stickers in our cars up here in Oklahoma. We do down in Texas. Cost five bucks. They come in, they look at your car, slap on an inspection sticker, and you're good for another year. It was expired by three days. I looked at that and I thought, okay, three days. Uh, he will give me a warning ticket. Oh, he gave me a ticket for $68. $68 for a three-day expired inspection sticker. It was all that I could do to hold my tongue. And remember, I'm a Methodist pastor talking to a police officer here. I took the ticket and I stuck it into my little file beside me for my business, and then I headed on home. I was very, very busy. Quite honestly, I've got to tell you, once I got home, I didn't think about it anymore. That file folder got filed back at the office. More than a month went by. And one day there was a ring at my doorbell. And there was the, the postal people, and they had a certified letter. And I opened up this certified letter, and it says you failed to pay your fine of $68. You missed your court date if you meant to contest it. You have now been fined $350. If you do not respond in seven days, a warrant for your arrest will be issued. I came and said, Marsha, $350 for a $5 inspection sticker. They're going to warrant for my arrest. Clear my calendar. I'm going down there and I'm going to throw myself on the court and ask for mercy. Maybe I can get it reduced. I called to ask for directions and they said, okay, if that's your court date, you've got to come down the old road you came. You're going to go over the railroad track. You're going to run into a cornfield and you hang a left. You go along the edge of the cornfield and then it's going to bend to the right and you're going to come down that road. Cornfield's going to be on your right. And then the road's going to turn to dirt. You're going to keep on going a few more miles and you're going to see a tin building on your left and the cornfield on your right. That's where you're coming. I should have known right then I was in trouble. So help me. That is exact uh, directions. I thought I'm going to get there early so I'll be prepared. And I got on down there and sure enough, you run into a cornfield. I hung a left and I turned to the right. Finally, a dirt road. I still can't see anything. Finally, this tin building shows up. I may have thought I was going to be early. There was a hundred cars there. They circled the building. I went inside. This obviously was not a, a hall of justice on a regular basis. This was a dance hall. You could see the bar over in one side. They had some chairs set up in the middle. On the other end was a temporary bench, and there's where the judge sat. There was a line of people around there waiting to check in with the clerk. It took me one hour before I got to the clerk to hand my letter to say, I have sinned. Here is my letter. I'd like to see the judge. She said, fine, take a seat. I went out there and I took my seat. And for the next hour, I watched justice. As people walked up to see the judge, they'd walk up, they'd say two or three words. He'd say two or three words. You were out of there. Justice was done. I sat there watching, and I thought, I know how justice is done in Texas and small towns. I'm going to walk up there, and he's going to say, hang him out of here. <laughs> That's how we do it down there. 
I mean, I'm sitting there watching this. Two hours have gone by now, and I'm, I am really very anxious about this. When I hear over the loudspeaker, they said, Robert Long, report to the clerk. I get up and I go back over to the clerk, and I said, what's the problem? And they said, we can't find your paperwork. And I said, ma'am, I, I brought you the letter. Here is the letter. I brought my letter. She said, I know. No, you did everything right. We can't find your paperwork. I said, what does that mean? She said, means it never happened. It's wiped away. You're free to go. I said, excuse me? What did you say? I'm saying it's like it never happened. You're free to go. It's been wiped away. I moved that car. I got out there quick and I left gravel spinning as I left that parking lot heading for home. And I am moving now home, and I got to tell you, I have the biggest smile on my face, and I am feeling so good. I mean, it's been wiped away. I saved 350 bucks for us. I cannot tell you how happy I was. And it suddenly hit me. Bob, do you know what grace is? Grace is when you know you were guilty. But then you hear the word, it's been wiped away. It is all forgiven. And you are free to go. That's how good it feels. That's how good it feels. Grace is all about knowing that even when you quit on God, God hadn't quit on you. In Jesus' day, People believe that God's love was for those who are good. If you're following the commandments, if you're doing the right things, then God loves you. But Jesus came along to say, you're right. We want people to follow the commandments. We want people to do well, and God will love you. But God also is going to love the harlots and the tax collectors and the sinners. Even when you quit loving God, God hadn't quit loving you. We don't know for sure, but church legend has it that when Jesus was taken away, Barabbas was curious to see what happened. There are many stories of how Barabbas tried to follow at a distance. He didn't want to get too near those soldiers again. But he went along, and he was there at the cross. He was there to hear Jesus look out at all those people and say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus didn't die on the cross to make you feel guilty. He died on the cross to set you free. So secondly, the real question is, what did Barabbas do with the opportunity he gets? What does it mean to be forgiven? And now what do you do? You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked about cheap grace. Cheap grace is when you and I are more than willing to accept God's forgiveness and then we just kind of do whatever we want to do again. No, when you and I have received that gift of God's forgiveness, we are then called to be the forgiving people. We are the ones who are then called to be those who go out and bless the lives of others. We have been forgiven. The past is wiped away. You are set free. Set free to now be a blessing to somebody else. It was Jennifer Thompson and Ronald Cotton who, after they went through this experience, said, we need to go talk about this. And so they wrote their book, Picking Cotton. 
They've been traveling around the country for years now talking to people about race relations, talking about our justice system, and talking about the importance of forgiveness and how it sets you free. You've got to do something with the opportunity that's been given to you. Barabbas. What did he do? What did he do? More important, what do you do with the opportunity given to you? It was back in June of 1992 that St. Luke's got to go with one other church from New York, Whitefish Bay in New York, to go to Russia to be the first two churches to go under the banner of our General Board of Global Ministries to Russia. We went as our missionaries representing the United Methodist Church. They went to one city. We went to Ulyanos, Russia. Ulyanos, Russia is the birthplace of Vladimir Lenin. The name of the town was originally Simbirsk. And Vladimir Ulyanovsk was his original name. He took the name of Lenin. And so Simbirsk took the name of their favorite son, Ulyanovsk. That's how it got its name. So we went to the birthplace of Vladimir Lenin. The birthplace, they called it the Bethlehem of Communism. That's where we went, 40 people from St. Luke's. We went there, not as tourists, we went and lived in their homes. We ate with them, we rode with them, we saw their jobs, we lived with them for more than a week. And then they would come to Oklahoma City and they would live in our homes and they would worship with us and see how we lived. It was an incredible experience. We were hoping to start a church. And I can tell you a church did start from that trip, a church that has been going now for 18, be soon 19 years. The Ulyanovs United Methodist Church is strong. But while we were there, we were able to have a worship service. And we were going to be in a government building and sent out flyers and invited people to come. We had no idea how many would come. Hundreds came. We were the first Americans they had ever seen in their lives. It had been a closed city. They wanted to come see the Americans. They came to the worship service. Now, let me ask you, if you get a chance to preach to a group of people who have never heard the gospel in their lives, people who have not been allowed to go to church for the last 70 years in their country, and you get the opportunity to finally share a word, what do you say? Man, I wrestled with that. I prayed about that. And as you know, I am a product of Muzan Biggs. I'm a storyteller. So I thought, I've got to tell them a story. And I started thinking of all the stories I could try to tell them. And I finally decided there were two stories that needed to be shared. The first story was the story of the prodigal son. And I told about a young man who left his father and took all that he had and went to a faraway country. And there he messed up and he felt so guilty and he blew it. But when he came home, there was a father who was anxious to throw his arms around him and love him and welcome him back. No matter what had happened, that father was willing to offer grace. I thought they need to hear the story of the prodigal son. And then the second story I told was the story of the Good Samaritan. As I said, there's a story about how a man's going down the road and someone else is hurt and they're enemies. But because this person knows what it means to be loved, they reach out and they love their enemy. I believe that's what we're here for because we know God's grace and we are called to love and to help one another. Those are the two stories I chose to share. Well, I kept going back to Russia. I, I probably was there more than a dozen times over the next few years. Many times going to Ulyanovsk, sometimes representing the Oklahoma Conference. 
we were finding other cities that other churches could become a sister city with them. And I got a call one day from Oklahoma Annual Conference saying, would you come over here and help us find some churches? And we're going to go on a Sunday. And I said, I can't be gone a couple weeks. And he said, fine, if you'll come fly with us on Sunday after church, we'll visit churches on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, and then you can catch a plane Saturday and fly back home and be ready to preach Sunday. It's a 20-hour trip from there all the way home, but because you're traveling west, you get a 30-hour day. And so I said, of course I'll do that. That's one of the dumbest things I have ever done. But I flew out Sunday right after church, and boy, I went to, you know, churches on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, and I met all the Russians, and oh, we talked, and Saturday morning I got back to Moscow Airport. And I'm there, and I'm thinking, I've got to get on this plane, and I've got to sleep. I've got to rest. It's a long day, and I've got to preach tomorrow, three services, and, and I'm so tired, and I think, I've got to work on my sermon. You've got to rest, and you've got to work on your sermon. I'm standing there in line, waiting to go through the line. And I'm standing there in the airport, and I suddenly look out and I, I see something out of my peripheral vision. And when I finally look over, there's a man and another lady. Turned out to be his wife. And then there was another lady between them. She was older, kind of short, and she had a shawl over her head. The younger man looked at me and he said, American? Nah. America? Nah. He hands me a piece of paper. It's in English. It says, hello, my name is Irina. I am traveling alone. I am going to America to be with my family. I do not speak English. Would you please help me? I looked over at them and this man puts his hand on this little lady and says, Mama. He put his hand on my shoulder and said, Comrade? I looked at them and thought, oh, God, no. God, no. I don't want Mama. I don't have time for Mama. I am exhausted. i got to fly all the way home. i got to work on a sermon. No, I do not want Mama. And I am standing there. I am having, i got to be honest, I'm having real internal conflict as I'm standing thinking, what can you say? How do you get out of this? And it was one of those moments in my life, I'm telling you, when I heard God speak and God said, and why are you here? You who know you have been guilty and you are forgiven, why are you here? And it took me longer than it should have. But I finally said, comrade, he said, Mama, comrade, comrade, mama. Introductions were made. They were happy. He handed me her passport. He handed me her ticket. He started handing all the luggage over, her papers. People stepped back and let mama cut in line. They were happy to let her cut in line. They were all snickering. I'd been chosen, not them. I now had mama. I mean, Mama would never have made it. She had never traveled before. And let me tell you, in that day in Russia, I mean, people stood there with guns and no one smiled in the passport when they stamped it. It was not an easy place to be. And I'm now herding Mama and I'm trying to get her bags checked. And, you know, this is almost 20 years ago and I'm, I'm carrying lots. We both have lots of carry-on baggage. And when we get on the other side, I look like a porter walking behind Mama with her bags and my bags. And 
know, you, you get to the plane, there's no jetway out to the aircraft. No, you go outside, you walk on the tarmac, and you walk up the steps to a jumbo jet. And I'm there trying to help Mama up the steps, and I'm carrying the bags and helping Mama get up. And I finally get her in her seat, and I get our bags placed, and I sit down, and I pull out her ticket and start looking. And when I start looking at her tickets, I realize we got a problem. We're flying to Frankfurt, and then Mama goes to New York, and Bob goes to Atlanta. I started looking at the tickets, and I realized we had a bigger problem. When we land, Mama's got a five-hour layover. Bob's got a 45-minute connection. So when we suddenly land, I am jumping up and kind of pushing people out of the way. I'm grabbing bags and saying, come on, Mama, we got to go. We get out there in the terminal, and I look up, and I, I look at the terminal on board, and, and I realize that my gate is across the aisle. Mama's gate? It's in another terminal. I, 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 we're running short of time. I, I am now panicked. I got her bags, and I turned to Mama, and I say, Pashli, Pashli, which in Russian means, lady, pick them up. We're going to run. <laughs> I mean, we literally are running through the airport. I'm carrying bags, and I am running, and Mama is behind me. She could move faster than she looked like she could move. She's behind me, and she's running, and we're trying to get to the next terminal. We get to the next terminal. Her gate is the last one in the terminal. And we start down, and suddenly we run into a roadblock. It's shut down. You see, they're in another flight for five more hours. And for security reasons, they have blocked the rest of the terminal. We're a long way away. I'm now looking at my watch. I mean, I'm down to minutes. And I'm thinking, we're dead. I mean, Mama is going to be left here in the Frankfurt airport, or I'm going to miss my plane. I, I can't believe this. I can't believe this. And I just out loud said, oh, God, help me. You've got to help me here. And I looked over, and there at a counter were two Delta agents. Mama was flying on Delta. I said, stay. I ran over to the Delta agents, and I started telling them about Mama, how I'd gotten Mama. And they are cracking up laughing. I finally said, stop laughing. You'll get Mama. They said, we will help Mama. We will get her to the plane. I said, come over here. Got back over to Mama, and I knelt down, and I said, Mama? Mama, New York. Bob, Atlanta. Uh, she understood. Put my hand on her shoulder and I said, Mama, comrade. <laughs> comrade, Mama. <laughs> she looked at me and she nodded. And uh, I knelt down in front of her and I took her hands. And I took her hands and I put them to the side of my face. And I just looked into her eyes. And for the first time, she broke into a smile. And she said, Spasiba. Spasiba. In Russian, it means thank you. Thank you. I dropped her hands, and I started to run for everything I was worth. I was flying through this airport to get back. And when I finally got back to my gate, no one was outside. There was a ticket agent standing there at the gate. I came running up with my ticket out, and she said, I don't know. I kept right on going. I ran down that jetway, and I literally stepped onto the plane. They looked at me, and they shut the door. I had no more taken my seat. We'd already pushed the gate. I am sitting there. Sweat is pouring off my face. I am sucking air. I am breathing hard. But I got to tell you, I felt so good. I mean, I'm just kind of smiling. I said, God, we did it. We did it. We took care of Mama. 
And again, it was like I heard this voice. And it said, if you feel so good, why were you so hesitant to help mama in the first place? Why did you almost say no? And I got to tell you, I thought about that for a while, flying out over that ocean. I almost said no because, because I'm busy. Because I had other important things to do. Because it wasn't convenient. I, who know what it means to be a sinner and to be forgiven and set free, I almost didn't take the opportunity to bless the life of another. The good news? Jesus didn't die on the cross to make you feel guilty. He died on the cross to set you free. I think the question tonight is, so what are you going to do with the opportunities that are given to you?